Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. I uh, just have a couple of quick announcements before we begin this episode. First of all, this subject matter is going to be a little bit sensitive this week. Uh, we're talking about crimes against children, and I just wanted to kind of prepare everybody for that. And second of all, my guest at one point refers to an upcoming documentary as The Babysitter, uh, and J.G. Michael has found out subsequently that the title of that act documentary has actually been changed to The Boy, and we just want to make sure that you have that information so that you can uh, look that up when it comes time. Thanks and enjoy the show. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I have. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, and I thank everyone for downloading this episode. With a special thanks going out to our Patreon subscribers who help me keep this whole thing going. Uh, check that out if you think you might want to join them. Um, anybody who listens to this show regularly knows that I love horror films, and I look for just about every chance I can to use them as a window of some sorts into politics and culture. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you, although maybe excited is not the, uh, the correct word here. First of all, this is going to be quite different than anything else we've ever done on this show before. And I have to warn you, it's not going to be necessarily a happy conversation as we get into some of the more heinous crimes imaginable here. Um, but one of my favorite horror movies of the last couple of decades has been Jeepers Creepers um, and even its sequel, its first sequel. What I did not know about this movie, though, until recently, is that its director, a guy named Victor Salva, has been con- had been convicted of sexual assault against a young boy for a crime committed on one of Salva's um, early film sets. Jeepers Creepers now has two sequels, and I got to thinking about those films in light of Salva's personal history, and the trilogy now feels really weird to me. And I wanted to talk about it with someone who I actually consider to be the best podcaster out there, uh, a guy named uh, J.G. Michael of a show called Parallax Views. J.G., how you doing? I'm I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I, I want to thank you for uh, inviting me on the show. It's been a very, very... Uh, busy week for me i've been releasing a lot of um episodes of parallax views i'm I'm not on really a regular schedule with it uh so i i release at my leisure but i've been releasing a lot lately because of the jeffrey epstein case which is all over the news i was covering it um in 2018 though in uh september because i could sort of feel something was gonna you know some bridges were gonna break with it and it was gonna you know start a flood um but yeah, that I, I've been covering stuff like that and uh, a few other issues. So I'm very familiar with Salva. It sort of ties into uh, the issue of, of child abuse and whatnot. Yeah, um, I don't. Uh, first of all, if my listeners don't listen to Parallax Views. I highly recommend it. It's a it's an intensely uh, entertaining show and so educational. And I have to say, as a podcaster, you have like the best delivery. I just I always look forward to your Parallax Views <laughs> sort of thing that you do. And uh, and I, so you make it a lot of fun to listen to. But you cover a lot of really. Um, I I don't want to say you're a conspiracy podcast. Um, You're sort of at that intersection where conspiracy meets politics. And uh, a lot of your shows kind of hover around that 
intersection. How would you describe your show and what it's about? Uh, I like to say it's a variety show with viewpoints you may not hear elsewhere. I, I've gotten the conspiracy thing, though. I, I sort of get upset with that at times because people have said, uh, is it like supposed to be like coast to coast AM? And I'm like, <laughs> no, that's that's not what I'm going for. I, I try to be very serious. And a lot of my views are actually um, pretty mainstream on a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm very skeptical of conspiracy theories. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I think you can get little nuggets of information out of a conspiracy theorists and whatnot yeah and you, you have this i don't know it's almost like a fun house uh your show like uh, one particular episode jg and i were talking last night on the phone that i wanted to sort of thank him for doing um and i'll never remember the name ormond was that his name uh this ron uh, ormond yeah 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 <laughs> it was a a christian like exploitation filmmaker from the whatever 50s through the 70s and uh that was such an interesting conversation i can't believe i'd never heard of that but that's the kind of like weird you put a spotlight on very weird parts of culture and i really really appreciate what you do yeah that one gets a lot of play a lot of people like the episode i did with bobby brown who was a, uh, you know this 90s video vixen that was uh in a lot of the glam metal music videos she used to d- date uh janie from um the band warrant you know she's <laughs> actually she's the cherry pie girl yeah she's my cherry pie <laughs> had her on um but then i'll do stuff with people like uh investigative journalist yasha levine who's been covering um, sort of malfeasance in the Silicon Valley and sort of the secret history of Silicon Valley. He's a really good journalist. Uh, So I cover a pretty uh, wide range of uh, topics. I think it's a human interest show in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, and it's great. And it's always, you find something I'd never heard of and you show me the ways that it's super interesting. Um, I'm just really, really grateful to you for taking the time to come talk to me about this. I don't even know how this came up. I, I had been thinking about it in my own head. And then for some reason we were talking about, oh, I think it was, uh, we were talking about that, the family Netflix thing uh, in some back channels. And uh, and I got the nerve up to ask you to come on to talk about this show or this episode. So I, I really do appreciate that. Um, uh, I, uh, could I just add real quick? I was, I was glad you wanted to talk about Salva because um, – you know, a, a lot of people have been wondering why I've been uh, so adamant about covering this um, Jeffrey Epstein stuff. And also now I'm I'm starting to cover sort of the aftermath of the uh, Nexium trial. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is that um, I, I got involved in a pretty uh, close personal relationship with um, an abuse victim, uh, a survivor of uh, child abuse um, a few years ago. So these topics actually really, really uh, hit close to home at this point. These um these cases they really when you know someone that has been a victim and a survivor you end up I I think it changes you as much as as it has changed them in some way it kind of alters you and you know it it really uh it's the stuff of nightmares a lot of times yeah and I, I do want to be very careful um to not make this like a lurid show right um this is like real human beings whose life have been you know kind of destroyed by by the actions of another person and uh and what i want to do today is almost like uh ramp down my own enthusiasm for these shows by putting them in their proper context here these movies and uh and so yeah i do want to kind of uh i find it fascinating but i don't want to lose the um, the fact that this is a real person's story in my fascination, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever read Alan Moore's From Hell, uh, the, mm-hmm. the graphic novel. His sort of per- stated purpose in that book is to kind of uh, take this out of the realm of like 
kitschy fun pop culture and rehumanize the victims of those crimes right and, and uh, I, yeah his his exact uh, words were that he thinks that we're amusing ourselves literally to death and he sort of wrote from hell as a response to that yeah yeah, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely don't want to fall into that trap. Uh, and I think you'll keep me honest there. Um, but, uh, this show, I do want to kind of focus on kind of quote, reading these movies through the lens of Salva's crimes. And I know that I'm going to be accused of psychoanalyzing an artist through his work. And I guess that's totally legitimate because that's exactly what we'll be doing on some level. Um, well, Salva admits that his films are largely, they're based around a lot of his own experiences. I mean, Salva has said that with rites of passage. Mm. Salva has said that uh, Nature of the Beast uh, was largely based around the characters were sort of inspired by the people he met in prison. Rites of passage um, dealt with um, his experiences with his father. So, I mean, even Salva is open about the personal nature of his films. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better, but, um, uh, but getting, uh, before we get to the, sh- the movies themselves, um, I do want to set up the crimes, right? Because these happened it, on the set of his first uh, main, like his first full feature. Am I right about this? Um, and we need to sort of set that up a little bit. Can you give us a little be- bit, a bit of background on what he was convicted of doing? Um, I want to go back even further than that, actually. Okay. I want to talk about um, Nathan Forrest Winters, who uh, he's the the survivor of of Salva's abuse and what Salva got um, convicted for. Um, Nathan was born in 1975. Um, So I believe it was in 1981 when he was around, you know, six years old, either 1981 or 1982. um, That's when he first comes in contact with Victor Salva. And uh, at the time, Victor Salva was working at a daycare center. And he was working at things like the uh, YMCA Boys Club and all that stuff. Mm. Um, so he was always working around children. Um, one of uh, the girls at the daycare center, um, her mother ended up talking to Salva. And Salva was working on um, some project called Goblin's Gold. And he needed a prop designer. Um, Just sort so, of a, a backyard film, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the details of Goblin's Gold. I, I only know that Nathan has talked about this, but, um, you know, they need a prop designer. And uh, Nathan's mother, Rebecca Winters, um, she uh, is an artist. So, you know, this mother recommended Victor get in contact with her. And that's how uh, Victor met Nathan Forrest Winters. Um, their relationship goes on from about when Nathan was six years old to the time he was 12. Um, And, you know, Victor took up a sort of father-like role, sort of a mentor role to Nathan. Nathan had um, a pretty difficult upbringing from what I understand. It was kind of rough. I know he had issues with his stepfather. Um, And, you know, I guess Victor made made an attempt to sort of fill that void and he starts grooming him. Um, and within the first year, that's when Victor starts getting sort of sexually involved with Nathan Forrest Winters. So I, I think Nathan would have been around seven at the time. And mm. it just he groomed him, basically. They knew each other for six years, um, leading up to um, a short film called, uh, I believe it was called Something in the Basement. Right. 
which uh, Nathan was in. And that gets shown, I believe, at a film festival uh, that Francis Ford Coppola was at. Uh, Coppola was a judge at this festival. And uh, Coppola was so impressed by this short film that he funded um, Salva's first feature film, uh, Clown House. Uh, American Zotrope Pictures, I believe, is the studio that uh, Coppola uses to make movies. Um, uh, it's it's so it's difficult talking about this. Some of this stuff is so uh, you know just creepy. But um, you know, I I guess Nathan really really wanted. Nathan has said on occasion in in media interviews that all he ever really wanted to be growing up, he wanted to be a a father and be a, uh, you know, a famous person. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted to get in, into acting, you know, and I, I think he, he kept asking Salva to be in Clown House. Um, and, you know, Salva was like, I don't know if you're prepared for it and all this. Um, and if, but eventually Salva ends up, you know, allowing Nathan to take part in the picture. Um, this is where it gets really, really bad, right? Um, because on the set of this movie, Clown House, which is a, uh, basically a movie about uh, these escaped mental patients that escape the hospital and dress up as killer clowns. And they terrorize this young boy, played by Nathan Forrest Winters, uh, throughout the movie. Um, well, it turns out that on the set, Victor Saville was abusing Nathan um, sexually. Um Victor was, I believe, convicted of five counts. Let me see here. Yeah, five counts of child molestation, uh, lewd act upon a child, and child pornography. Um, he actually filmed these sexual acts that he had with Nathan Forrest Winters for his own viewing pleasure. Oh, yeah. um, Rebecca Winters finds out about this because she not notices that Nathan... Um, is sort of having weird behaviors and whatnot. And and as an aside, um, you know, Victor Salva got so close to the Winters family that he was babysitting Nathan at, at times um, when Rebecca and uh, Nathan's stepfather were going out. You know, um, Nathan spent time in Victor Salva's house alone with him. Um, so a lot of trust was gained with Victor um, Salva before all of this happened. Um, and, you know, Rebecca started asking Nathan questions and Nathan eventually ended up telling her what had happened. Um, and they went to the police mm. and that's how the trial ended up coming about. Um, I don't know if there's any more details you, you want there. He did get convicted. He served, he was, I think, supposed to serve three years, but he only served between 15 and 18 months, uh, or at least that's what, what's reported. He did not serve the full three years. Another interesting um, aspect of this is that Nathan claims that Francis Ford Coppola actually, um, he actually sued Nathan's family uh, for breach of contract mm. for coming out about all this so oh, that wow. in itself is pretty uh upsetting i mean coppola has a lot to answer for i had not heard of that wow that's that is shocking and, and horrifying for sure um yeah and yeah the fact that he only serves 15 months 
it just feels like with the evidence that they had, that just seems like an extraordinarily light sentence for. I mean, they had videotape. Yeah. Yeah. For the uh, for the crime, I mean, there are people who serve longer that just for having those kinds of tapes, right? Um, and, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's part of the reason that I think, even though he was convicted for what he did, and you can make kind of a weak argument that he paid his crime to society or paid his debt to society, um, it didn't feel like he really did on some level. And um, very quickly upon his release, he finds himself working in Hollywood under the protection of, of Francis Ford Coppola in a lot of ways. Well, I, I think, too, um, you know, he was doing, I think, odd jobs after he got out of prison. Um, but he was delivering to he was delivering scripts to uh, people at the studios under the guise of being like a, um, a delivery boy, yeah. or an errand boy. But at the same time, he's giving these scripts to these studio people. So, I mean, I, I feel like this is the conspiratorial part, right? I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes I wonder uh, how much people knew and when. Um, for instance, um, Rose McGowan, who, who uh, I do have to credit her for coming out about Me Too earlier than you know, really anyone else. She was essentially blackballed pretty early on. It wasn't until later that people started defending Rose McGowan. But if you look at McGowan's career, the second she started speaking up about Harvey Weinstein – uh, she starts ending up in these really lower budget movies. She's sort of blackballed from the Hollywood mainstream. I think that's started to change now, right? I think McGowan is looked at in a much more positive light. Sure. Um, but during her time where she was sort of blackballed, she ends up in a Victor Salva film called uh, Rosewood Lane. And um, it was funny. I was just watching a clip of her being asked about something. And she said, you know, I ended up in a movie with a pedophile as the director. I didn't even know about it, though. I just I saw the protests and I was like, what is this about? Oh, they're just jealous that they couldn't make the film. But she just sort of writes it off. It's it's very odd. Like, I didn't know anything. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's disturbing. And and Salvo, of course, um, the clown house is actually kind of a minor low budget classic of the 80s. Right. Um, Sam Rockwell is in it. It's a very early role for for a teenage Sam Rockwell. Um, And uh, in its premiere, he's already in prison. Uh, for the for the crime right while the movie is being premiered um, and so unlike today this uh, there's this horror film that was supposed to be released and they 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 shelved it because of pressure from the Trump administration uh, like that did not happen uh, in uh, 1987 or whatever it was when uh, Clown House was released released I think I think Clown House was filmed in 87 but it's a movie from like 1989 and it may have been released on like video in 1990 before I think MGM pulled it after after the controversies came out. Yeah, um, and I want to talk about Clown House in a minute, but it is um, it is a rather disturbing movie, um, knowing what we know about it to, to look at now. But Nathan Forrest Winters has been pretty vocal in trying to bring some attention to the fact that despite Salva's crimes, Hollywood has not really punished him. The opening of Powder, um, which was a, a mid-90s movie that Salva directed, uh, is one example. Which also has its own issues. Yeah, which I have not seen this movie, so I want to hear about that. Um, but uh, So what are some efforts that have been brought up against Salva's uh, continued employment in Hollywood? And why do you think he's been, you know, surprisingly unaffected by Me Too? He still has a couple of things in production right now. Well, like you said, there was the protests uh, against Powder. Um, I, I think since Jeepers Creepers 3 came out and, you know, the age of social media, people have been much more vocal. 
I know there were problems with the production of Jeepers Creepers 3 in Canada. Mm. Um, in regards to casting, I think uh, whatever casting agency they were using, and I could be wrong about this. Um, I may be getting a detail or two wrong, but uh, I think they pulled out of the production when they were told who Salva was. Um, yeah, and they didn't it, someone release a statement, the union or somebody, um, because there had that's been... That's what a, I was referring to. Yeah, there had yeah. been a casting call for a uh, 18-year-old girl who is going to be playing a, an abuse victim from age 13, right? And so that given that in the context of Salva's own history was a big red flag and they sort of discouraged people from uh, auditioning for the, for the movie. Right. Yeah. It was the union. I, I, I mixed up there with the casting agency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting. There's been reports too of uh, when powder was made. Um, There were reports that he would, uh, eat lunch with you know the minors in the cast and um I, there's always been reports that he would let minors on the director's chair and that he was very clingy with underage um actors in his movies and this is five or six years after his imprisonment right this is yes. not like un- yes. this is this history is not unknown to people at this point right well i mean the studio executives, I think, at Disney were, were like, well, we didn't know until after the fact. But I, I, I kind of have to wonder sometimes. Like, what that is so hard to believe. Yeah, that is right? so hard to believe. Everything that Disney is in con- – I mean, maybe it's the Disney of today would certainly know stuff like that, maybe more than back then. But Hollywood is not a big town, and I can't believe nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean – you know, I, I want to add to because I think it's something people misunderstand with Nathan Forrest Winters. Um, Nathan has never looked to get media attention. He does not care about that. I've corresponded with him here and there. He's been through a great deal, um, but he's never sought out media attention. He doesn't even he's not even trying to make sure that Salva doesn't get work. He has said that on multiple occasions. The only thing that Nathan Forrest Winters cares about is that another child doesn't get abused under Salva's watch. Mm-hmm. He's talked about that. He sent Victor Salva a letter. They haven't – Salva won't speak to him at all. He won't speak to him at all. At all. He hasn't apologized or anything like that. Nathan Forrest Winters sent him a letter um, saying, you know, my only goal is to make sure that you never do this to another child. That's my only goal. And Salva, of course, never responded. But, but you know, Nathan hasn't even been, you know, he's talked about the fans of the Jeepers Creepers franchise. And he, you know, it's it's funny. They're making a documentary now called um, The Babysitter, mm. which is about Nathan's experiences. And it's actually directed by Connor Frazier, who was a fan of Salva's work. And um, Connor just decided to start talking to Nathan Forrest Winters. Um, and they ended up doing a documentary about it. I don't think Nathan really, he doesn't have anything against the people that are fans of these movies. He's not saying don't see them. All he really wants is to make sure that Salva can't do any of this violence towards children ever again. And I think people miss that a lot of times because, um, there's this sort of narrative of like, you know, why can't Nathan Forrest Winters just stop? It was 30 years ago. I've heard... That's Nathan has said that that Salva actually has said that that oh, 
you know, that Salva has said, uh, oh, maybe one day Nathan will get sick of doing this and then I can enjoy my career. I can't find the interview where Salva says that, but um, I trust Nathan. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's telling that, you know, I'm sorry if I'm rambling. I think it's no. telling that Nathan isn't mad at the fans of these films. He's not trying to boycott them and say you're not allowed to see them. He just doesn't want this to happen again. And I think that's the most important thing to note about Nathan. He's a really great advocate and he does a lot of really great work. Yeah. And in that way, um, that's one of my own struggles is I, I fully still assert that these are really wonderful movies. And I want to talk a little bit about Salva's talent as a filmmaker. It is, it's, it's legible. I mean, he's really got some skill as a filmmaker in this genre, particularly. And, and so I, I don't know what to do with these movies now. Right. Um, but it's, it's like, I can't unring the bell now that I know what I know about Salva and his personal history. These movies take on an entirely different meaning. Um, because as I think we're going to talk a lot about, um, he's almost encoded this, um, whatever it is in him into the DNA of these movies. And it's almost like you can't watch these movies without seeing that issue, uh, like, uh, in on display for everyone to see. Um, and so I don't add one more thing. Yeah. Yeah. You asked about the me too stuff. Yeah. The, I mean, I have my own theory as to why, um, Salva doesn't get talked about as much. And I think it's because this is a case where, you know, the victim is like a young boy. Yeah. And I think there's still a taboo around even talking about um, young boys and men's, men who are victims of sexual assault. Um, people just don't want to talk about that because it's, it's, it's almost like people can't comprehend that boys and men can also be victims of this kind of abuse, you know, and I think that's really sad. I, but I think that's why you don't hear nearly as much about about the Salva case as a lot of other cases. Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. And I mean, the fact that is that the people who are supporting his career have never withdrawn that support. Like uh, when asked about this issue, I think this was during the powder um, era. Um, Francis Ford Coppola issued a statement that just said he is an extremely talented filmmaker. That was his only response to the, um, the question of how you can continue, um, what do you say about continuing to work with him? Um, well, so to be fair, there there are there have been producers that have pulled out, um, specifically in Jeepers Creepers 3. He had a producer pull out, um, and he needed to get another producer to finish the film. So there have been people that don't want to touch him once they know what, what his background is. Yeah, fair enough. And so it isn't like an entirely systematic uh, enabling here, but there's uh, there's enough people that he continues to work. And honestly, I don't have a, uh, a firm feeling one way or the other about someone's ability to work after they've already after they fulfilled their legal obligations. Right. Um, I think that is an, an open conversation. I think Forrest or Winter's right uh, in saying that he just wants to make sure that nobody else, you know, this doesn't happen to anybody else. Right. Well, I think that I think the really difficult thing with it is that, you know, every time a new Victor Salva movie comes out now, um, Winters will have to see the news cycle about this. Mm. And I, I think that that's that almost it, it sort of forces people that have been victims of abuse to have to relive this trauma when they see, you know, this guy's face on the news all the time. 
you know, you open up a, a tab on your computer, you're on Yahoo News, and you just see Victor Salva's face. It's it's sort of why you know I, I take uh, the Me Too stuff very seriously, because you know if if you're uh, who was it, Christina Ford um, with the Kavanaugh case, sure. Yeah, if, I mean, if you're Christina Ford, you're having to see Kavanaugh every day on TV, you know, and you're, you know, that has a psychological effect. So, you know, that's that's another issue. Um, I I think that pedophilia and, um, I, well, I think pedophilia is uh, a mental health issue, and people with that issue need to get treatment. Um, but with Salva, I think. I'm I'm not one of these people who is like, oh, we need to hang Victor Salva, blah, 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 blah. Like, I know people that will say that. Um, I just am not sure that he should really be working in Hollywood with such a public uh, face. I mean, I'm fine with the guy living his life. I just don't think he should be anywhere near Hollywood um, and in the public view. Yeah, it's the I mean, it's a version of the the Woody Allen and Roman Polanski uh, problem. Right. Um, And so it is we don't have an answer for how to grapple with this complicated question yet. And so um, and and just uh, for the education of the listeners, there are two movies that are listed under IMDb as in pre-production in which he's the director. One is called the old hag syndrome and the other is called javelins of light. And they both seem to be horror films. Um, and so uh, that he is whatever pre-production means in Hollywood. Many of those things never see the light of day. Right. Um, and so, but uh, there are, he's still technically working. And so, um, so well, it's funny too, because uh, you know, Francis Ford Coppola uh, is kind of the guy that's been keeping his career afloat, especially after powder. Yeah. Um, all the Jeepers Creepers films are, uh, except maybe the third one. I, I, think, I think, yeah, I think American Zotrope was involved in the third one. I could be wrong about that. But the first two were, you know, fully funded by uh, Coppola's studio. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, yeah, and we'll get. I'm going to get into those movies in a minute. But before we do that, um, we've talked to this before. Uh, you've not. I've not seen all of Clown House. Um, I found it on YouTube and uh, I watched like the first 10 minutes and it was in the context of what happened, kind of startlingly um, shocking. Uh, and so uh, it definitely displays a real talent. Like I said, um, I think I said in the, the pregame here, a kind of an almost John Carpenter esque talent for this genre of filmmaking. Um, but given what we know happened on that set, the first 10 minutes are extraordinarily shocking uh, to me. And so I didn't watch any more than that. Um, you said you watched the ending. Uh, what, what, did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, it ends with uh, someone saying to Nathan's character, um, Casey, uh, nightmare's over, Case. Nightmare's over. Mm. I, I just found that a very telling line of dialogue at the end. Yeah, and and really, it's just beginning for the actor, right? Right. Um, yeah, the beginning of the movie is all these, you know, it's it's Winters and um, Sam Rockwell and their co-star, these brothers, um, all shown in their underwear, like the first ten minutes of the movie. And at one point, there is a a butt shot of Nathan Forrest. I don't know if it's a body double. I don't know how in the world they got away with that, but uh, it is. Uh, it's really. Um, kind of shocking given what we know happened on that set um, mm-hmm. that it, it 
it's hard to imagine that no one was like raising eyebrows while they were pr- producing this movie, um, given mm-hmm. what was they were what they were actually filming. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's out there. I'm not. This is one of those shows where I'm not really going to recommend you go see anything, but if if you're interested, it is out there. Um, and so one thing I, again I want to reiterate is that Salva is a real talented filmmaker, um, particularly in the horror genre. I think and. Um, a clown house, as I said, shows some real skills, horrific as it is. And so does Jeepers Creepers. Can we talk a little bit about what makes that movie really effective as a horror movie? And maybe you don't like it as much as I do, but. Which one? Jeepers Creepers? Yeah. The, the first one, especially. Yeah. Is there, is there any way we could talk about um, some of his work after clown house a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Before we do that. Yeah. I, I, because I, I think he's done some, um, some rather interesting films after uh clown house um the the two that i had in mind to mention real quickly were uh rites of passage which is about a homophobic father who basically ends up pushing his gay son into the hands of a psychotic killer Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because uh salva has said that the a lot of it was inspired by his own interactions with his father because Salva is openly gay. Yeah, um, and he came out around eighteen or something like mm-hmm. it. It really and it was yeah. a traumatic experience, right? Yeah, yeah. I've I've often wondered. Um, you know, I, I'm one of these people that believes in in cycles of abuse. Um, mm. I've often wondered, and this isn't making Salva into a victim, but I've often wondered if there's a real dark history with Salva himself and abuse. Um, I. It sounds like he didn't have the uh, best childhood. I, I know he was sort of, you know, this sort of pudgy kid that always felt like an outsider. He loved horror movies, even um, growing up, um, and he always identified with the monster. He, he would tell people, that's the most interesting thing about the movie, the monster. Why does everyone think, oh, the monster is so creepy? That's the only interesting part of the movie. Yeah. He's on record as saying stuff about like that. Um, and so I, I've often wondered. I, uh, well, I've seen him. Ahead. I've seen him to say, particularly creature from the Black Lagoon, um, and that's interesting because uh, that is a very sympathetic monster, of course. Um, but it's also physically, it seems to be a kind of template for the creeper in, in Jeepers Creepers. Mm-hmm. So um, that movie definitely had a profound impact on him. Right, right, and and it also reminds me of something else. Um, Nathan has always said it, that. Um, you kind of have to strike the root with these things. Um, even abusers are often also in a, in a past time victims themselves, yeah. um, which I think is a really interesting point when we talk about these things. We can't forget that. And again, that's not to make uh, Salva into like a victim, but I, I've often wondered if there's a lot more going on with Salva's um, early life than we realize. Um, but that that film's interesting. Um, the other one that I actually think is the best film he ever did is uh, The Nature of the Beast. Um, let me pull up a sort of synopsis real quick. It, it's basically about these two men. One is like this suburbanite uh, played by Lance Henriksen, and the other is this sort of uh, low-down-and-dirty character played by Eric Roberts. Um, he's sort of a forgotten name in Hollywood now, even though he won a, an Academy Award. Uh, more people know Julia Roberts. Yeah, I and mean... His, and his daughter, uh, Emma Roberts. No, oh. one, no one remembers Eric. Yeah, he's a he's a. I mean, you can't imagine '90s direct-to-video cinema without Eric Roberts, right? <laughs> I mean, he's like the the face of that whole genre. 
Yeah, he does like 15 movies a year. Yeah. 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 He, uh, and of course, famously in Batman, The Dark Knight, he was one of the gangsters in The Dark Knight. So. But uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting film because um, these two meet up on the road and it's during a time where a casino bank robbery thing has happened. Right. This casino has been robbed. And, uh, you know, it's implied throughout the entire film that Eric Roberts, uh, you know, is either involved or he's a killer. Because at the same time as this robbery is going on, there's also these murders happening with a serial killer. Mm. So the whole movie is based around, uh, you know, who is the bank robber and who is the serial killer between Henriksen and Eric Roberts. Um, it's a very interesting psychological thriller. I hope I hope I explained it well enough, but uh, it's kind of interesting because, um, spoiler alert, you find out at the end, you know, you're led to believe Eric Roberts is the killer and that, you know, maybe Henriksen is the guy that did the robbery. Um, but it turns out it's the opposite way around. Mm. And Henriksen is actually this vicious murderer. And um, at the end of the film, Roberts is like, well, why did you do it? And uh, Henriksen says... You know, some people are in so much pain that they want an angel of death to save them and to sort of relieve them of their suffering. Mm. And uh, for some people, I'm I'm that angel of death, essentially. I'm paraphrasing, but yeah. that's more or less what he says. Um, it's it's kind of disturbing, though, because, um, you know, Henriksen's character, you think it's sort of like you know, the upstanding suburban guy and, and Roberts is the, you know, dirty, evil convict. But really, you know, appearances are not always what they seem. And I, I think that relates a lot to Salva. There's also a really interesting monologue. I, I think you may end up uh, putting that in this episode where Eric Roberts talks about um, how men will try to use sex with either women or, or other men. Yeah. Or they'll try to use money They'll try to use anything to fill the black hole inside them. Yeah, I, uh, let me. I think I have that queued up. I, I think it's queued up, right? Uh, forgive me if it's a little bit off, but yeah, it is a really interesting, very nihilistic uh, monologue here. And uh, let's let's listen to that. Dig that hole is inside him. You know the hole I'm talking about, Jack? That one. The rips open inside everyone when they suck in their first screaming breath. It's why babies scream, Jack. We think it's a demon inside us. The great white whale, the prince of darkness. But it's not, Jack. It's just a big, empty hole. I see men try to fill it with women, with other men. With the good book, thank you, Jesus. Money, power, and everything you can think of on the planet. And you know what finally separates the men from the boys? Jackie boy. The wisdom. The knowledge of the ages. You know what it is, Jack? That hole, it can't be filled. We pretend because no one's got the balls to live with the truth. The truth being that inside that hole, Jack, is what we really are. Yeah, I think um, that's a, a really kind of, it is an intense piece of dialogue and um, in, inspired by his time in prison, right? And, uh, and yeah, and it's a very, I mean, it's, it's a Nietzschean form of nihilism, right? Did, did I, I, I couldn't hear the, the last bit of that. Did you include the bit where he says that's the nature of the beast? Uh, no. Yeah. That the whole, yeah. yeah, that that's just the nature of the beast. Yeah. And that's where the entire right. movie comes from. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty frightening. I know Salva 
and this may just be an attempt of his to sort of get um, sympathy, but he's always said that, uh, you know, he was beaten in prison and whatnot, which I, I can believe given the history of, of that happening with uh, child abusers in prison. But um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting movie because I think that movie is really about what's inside Victor Salva. And it, it, it parallels a lot of what we see later in Jeepers Creepers. Um, if there's any Salva film that may be worth watching, I, I hate to say that. It's probably Nature of the Beast, but uh, I don't know. I don't want to recommend his films openly. Right, right. I mean, that's what that's the struggle that I'm facing right here. I don't. I've not formulated like a mechanical response to how to how to deal with these kinds of revelations, right? Um, it's uh, it's hard for me to to reconcile um, my love for Jeepers Creepers with with the person who made it, right? So, um, how did you first uh, end up uh, watching Jeepers Creepers? That that was like during my childhood. You know, I, I remember uh, Jeepers Creepers was like the big thing when I was in like middle school. You know, yeah, it was. I mean, two thousand one. I mean, that's sort of a, a a weird time for me. It's kind of the the waning days of the video store era, sort of, uh, right? I mean, the internet's around, but you don't have Netflix or anything like that yet. So we still go to video stores. And just based on the, uh, I don't know if it was a recommendation from someone in the store or just the cover on the box and or just that it was new horror, I watched it. And it was one of those movies that um, I didn't know anything. I had no context for going into, right? I, I just, uh, it was a horror movie I wanted to see. And the way that story just kind of unfolds and reveals more and more about the monster as it goes on, um, I just thought was really well crafted. Um, and so I was extremely sort of enthusiastic about it. Um, and then at that point, um, I, I was never until recent years kind of between, I mean, since social media developed, right, um, on the internet in chat boards or anything like that. So I had no idea about the history of Victor Salva until right around Jeepers Creepers 3. I think it was after that. Um, and so I had no idea that Jeepers Creepers 2 was something I probably should have been more careful about, but I still enjoyed that one a lot as well. So, yeah, for me, it was just sort of a, a thing you stumble upon in the video store with no context. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's also – it's a very interesting film because it it really changes pace. Yeah, like the the first half of the movie is such a long, dread inducing slow burn, and then they end up in the creepers' lair. Yeah, um, and that part is you know like probably the most intense part of the movie. And then it switches over and it almost becomes like an action movie where you know they're getting chased by the cre- the creeper. And I I don't remember every detail but it it becomes much more of a you know almost like a car chase in a lot of ways exactly and they introduce the character of the psychic um who uh sort of gives them this kind of information about the supernatural natures of of this because before that point it just i mean it could have been like um the car or some sort of uh uh duel right some sort of classic uh psycho on the road story um without having i go ahead i was gonna say he's influenced Salva's influenced by Dole. I mean, if oh. you watch Nature of the Beast, um, it's very influenced by by Dole. It's a road movie. Oh, that's fascinating. So, yeah, he's, yeah, he's pretty influenced by that. He Actually, Salva has been noted as saying that um, when he was growing up, he wanted to be the thinking man's Steven Spielberg. Which is... I don't really think I don't really think Salva's a thinking man Spielberg. I think Salva thinks that darkness and macabreness are, you know, 
profound and intellectual. Yeah. Um, I don't think they are, though. I think he wants to think that uh, maybe as a way to rationalize a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think I think and I have seen that quote and I, I felt like it was very hubris filled right when I read that. But um, but yeah, I see a lot of um, craft in what he does, though. There is there is a lot of intention between between the, the angles and the, the camera setups and everything else. And so, yeah, I see him sort of as someone aspiring to that level or or like I said, maybe because he um, of the horror genre, someone like a John Carpenter. Um, but like lesser, but, uh, but still like in that sort of, um, skill set sort of, um, yeah. And so, yeah, for me, uh, Jeepers Creepers is laid out in a really, it just unfolds in a really interesting way. You have this constant revelation until the end scene when the wings sprout and we see, him, you know, and we see him fly away with, uh, with, uh, Justin, what's his name? Uh, uh, forget his, I forget. Justin Long. Justin Long. Yes. Um, right. and, uh, and so, yeah, that to me is like, it was always just such a, it was a surprising movie. I didn't, it kept, I didn't expect it to be good when I rented it and it was, and it kept surprising me the whole time I watched it. It's one of those movies that I think I watched twice in a row once I saw it. Um, and so it was, uh, it, it was, um, impressive to me in a, in a way without any context. And, and so, yeah, like I said, um, after I know though, <laughs> in this context, so, uh, but in the context of what he's done though, with his life, Victor Salva, this movie is unnerving and in, in not a good way. And so this well, even the name of the monster, right? Everyone calls him the creeper. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, okay. And, and you know what? It's interesting too, because the way the movie switches the trope, like, um, you know, the movie is centered around Trish and her brother, I think, Derry or Daryl. Derry. Derry. Okay. And they're, they're traveling home from college uh, for spring break, right? And they end up seeing, you know, the creeper. And then they start to investigate more. And, you know, it leads down the rabbit hole into the creeper's lair and all this stuff. Um, but it's interesting because usually, uh, you know, the monster is going after the main girl the survivor girl as we call her in the horror genre right but uh this is one of those movies alongside um the only other movie i can think of like this was um nightmare on elm street 2 freddy's revenge which is the most um it's it's a very like homoerotic sort of take on the uh nightmare on elm street movies but this is similar to that in that you find out the monster the creeper is actually after her brother it's not after her um and the ending of it to me is um, very, very disturbing because I've always taken the ending of, of Jeepers Creepers. And again, spoiler alert, um, he takes away Derry. Yeah. And he, I, I believe he takes his eyeballs. Yeah. That, that's the part of the, the, the idea for those of people who haven't seen it uh, is the creeper emerges every 23, every 23rd spring uh, for 23 days. It gets to feed. That's the kind of mythology basically that Isn't we're doing. Isn't it every 23 years? Oh, did I say days? Yes, it's twenty three years yeah. for twenty three days. It, right. it gets to uh, it gets to feed, and uh, and it basically sniffs fear in people, and through that, the smell of everybody's individual fear, it can detect body parts from them that it wants to consume, right? And for dairy right, to regenerate, yes, yeah. basically, yeah. And for it's, his, it's it's the apex predator, yeah. Yeah, basically. And, and it's, it's a really interesting mythology. Um, honestly, um, and in, in the first two movies, especially, it's very mysterious. And, uh, and, and the third movie we'll get to in a bit. It, it kind of breaks down a little bit for me, but, um, but the, um, uh, but the idea behind it is really, 
I think, kind of a fascinating one. But when you think about it again, in the context of Salva's own kind of messed up psychology, right? Um, this idea of like consuming the bodies in this case of young men, right? Is, uh, and, and making art out of them. He, he uses the leftover parts to create these kind of giant, like horrific murals of, of intertwined bodies. Um, uh, and he makes weapons out of the bones and that kind of thing as well. Um, it, it really does take, uh, a different you have to see the movie differently um once you know what salva's own kind of tortured history is well i mean even the way and and i could i could be misremembering this he like the way the creeper and i i think he was played by um uh jonathan breck uh even the way breck portrays the creeper like the way that he looks at uh the mill characters like justin long throughout the franchise is like like there is that like very overt sexual element to it. Yeah, I read and this um I guess we can get into Jeepers Creepers 2 where I think this really starts to get developed. I think it's there just in the concept, right, of the first movie. In the second I want I wanted to ask you something yeah, real quick. If sure. I could. Um what do you think about the ending of Jeepers Creepers? Because to me um the the angry part of me is like holy crap, that's Salva is basically saying I got away with it. He's mocking you know, victims. That, well, that's how I felt it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, again, without any context, it's just really creepy, uh, if you pardon the pun, that uh, the monster escapes and wins, right? That, that's sort of a twist on on the horror genre in many ways. Um, but within the context of what he actually did, the monster never really comes to any kind of uh, justice, right? Even in the second one, when they ostensibly kill him, it's just he ran out of time for his 23 days, right? Uh, and uh, and the monster is sort of indestructible in this. And so if you see the monster as his own kind of recognition of this beast within him, right? Um, that is, you do, he flies away from a jailhouse, Right. I mean, he's he's in actually a jailhouse in that last scene in which they're supposed to be protected from him. And he the the cops are helpless against him. No, no firearms can work. Right. And so he f- literally flies away from jail with his victim. Um, and uh, and yeah, it is. I mean, it's not hard to psychoanalyze this movie in that in that way. Right. It's It's hard to tell, too, whether he's making any kind of judgment either. You know, like I, I'm not I. I it's not like he's trying to make us sympathize with the creature. It's like I've often wondered if uh, the films are him critiquing himself or if he's sort of mocking uh, victims of abuse with the ending of Jeepers Creepers. I, I can't really decide on that. And it's probably not that simple either. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't I would hesitate to uh, kind of nail that down one way or the other, because there does seem to be a kind of self-awareness um, of the monstrosity. I mean, he is a brutal, ugly monster. Right. And, uh, there does seem to be a self-awareness of the brutality and the ugliness there. Um, it's, uh, rather shameless for my money to put that on display for everyone to see, knowing that your own personal history is out there. Right. And everyone should know it. Right. And so that is, uh, that is one thing that's weird about it. And so, um, anything else about that first movie? Um, no, I, I think the, uh, the the second movie in a lot of ways is much more uh, interesting, even though I, I'm not sure it's as um, well-crafted as the first one. I mean, the first 40 or so minutes of the first movie actually are like legitimately 
you know, nerve wracking. Um, I don't know if he ever really reaches that point again with the second one no, or the third one for that matter. Yeah. Well, the third one is like a sci-fi channel movie basically. Right. Um, and I think that's where actually it was distributed. Ultimately. It did get a limited theatrical release. In fact, it was given a one day premiere and it did so well on the one day premiere that they expanded it to like a week. Yeah. It's a popular franchise, right? And you see the Creeper mask included in almost any Halloween store. You can buy the Creeper mask and um, it's become akin to like Chucky or Jason, right? Uh, in, in terms of horror fandom. And so, yeah, it is, it is very popular in that way. Um, and in the second one, he looks a lot like Freddy Krueger <laughs> with the hat. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he also um, begins mugging like Freddy Krueger, too, uh, in the second one. And I think that's actually one of the things I want to talk about with regards to the second movie. I do think the second movie is really interesting. And had it been a different filmmaker, this movie is actually an interesting um, kind of dissection of we might say toxic masculinity today, right? I don't know if anyone would use that term in 2003, but uh, in, in 2018, 19, we would definitely talk about how this movie sort of talks about the, the, the jockeying for masculine position on that school bus. Um, that is basically, it's a one set movie. Uh, it's all in or around the school bus for the most part. There's one other kind of minor scene that we see, but um, it's not a minor scene, but it's a minor set. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, it is basically taking the creeper back to literally school with juveniles, right? And so the first thing the creeper does is disable the bus with his little gadgets. Uh, oh, you're you're missing the first part. Oh, well, that's true. I, it, yeah. it starts. It starts with a uh, you know. There's this farmer played yeah. by the great Ray Wise, yeah. um, who, who is great really in this great movie. Actor. Yeah. Uh, you know, loved him in Twin Peaks, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he, he's a farmer and he has an older son and a younger son. Um, I think their names are the Taggarts in the movie. That but, is uh, right. Yeah. The Creeper, uh, I think it's on the 22nd day of its feeding frenzy. The Creeper uh, disguises as Scarecrow abducts the younger son, which, yeah. again, like the it's very thinly veiled metaphor in my mind. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Um, and in fact, this takes place maybe four days after the first movie. So it's still like in that same cycle. This isn't a jump ahead, uh, 23 more years for the next batch, right? This is, uh, a couple of days, maybe three or four days after the events of the first movie. Um, yeah, the chronology for this series gets really weird when we get to the third film, but yeah, yeah. It's, it's telling to me that Billy Tackert, the young boy, um, that the, the creeper goes after the young son rather than the uh, older brother or the father. Exactly. Right. And, and it's also telling, I mean, also this, anybody listening to the show knows I'm also interested in religion. New, new listeners might not know that uh, we cover religion as much as we call or cover anything else on the show. And um, the fact that he disguises himself as a scarecrow in their, their field or their cornfield um, while young Billy is working on another scale scarecrow. He's trying to get it tied up basically for the, for the, whatever the production of corn and uh and next to the scarecrow that he's working on is the creeper in a kind of cruciform sort of stance uh he's on a cross essentially right and he leaps off of the cross (laughs) right and uh, and abducts the kid and whisks him away uh in front of both the father and the the older brother and uh yeah it is Again, in the context of what Salva has done, like right under the noses of the parents, he whisks away a child. And that's how this movie opens. And it is a really effective um, 
chilling, scary scene. It's um, subtlety and everything is there. It's it's a really well made um, piece of cinema, but mm. it's hard to not see the psychological subtext there as well. Um, and so, yeah. And I always, I was wondering too, if there was a little hint of Stephen King, I mean, children of the corn seems to be uh, with the religious context of children of the corn coupled with the cornfield with his, him being on a cross. I wonder if there's some sort of nod there as well. Um, and Stephen King is like known to sort of uh, in his work um, torment children, right? I mean, he, he does mm-hmm. things to children in ways that we don't usually see in horror. And, uh, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I'm, I'm thinking now about how, uh, Salvis said he's influenced by Spielberg. And it's funny because, um, you know, guys like Adam Parfrey from Feral House, um, there used to be rumors in Hollywood that Spielberg may have had a pederastic streak. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think that's very tabloidish. But yeah. one of the things people always point out is that, um, you know, Spielberg really loves abusing children in his movies. Like, like he, he really enjoys scaring the crap out of kids, like in Jurassic Park and Jaws. Like the kids are always put in like severe danger. Even in Schindler's List, like a lot of the emotional effect is what happens with the children. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I maybe that's why Salva likes Spielberg so much. I don't know. Or maybe he relates to that. I don't know. Yeah, although Spielberg leaves them alive usually, right? Um, whereas Stephen That's King true. is willing to kill them. Um, I actually well, also Sal is willing to kill them too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and make art out of them. Um, the uh, it was interesting. The um, I, I one of my favorite Halloween movies is the movie Trick or Treat. Um, and the anthology, uh, right? Yeah, it's a really cool little anthology which I love. The guy who directed that also directed Krampus and uh, and the new Godzilla movie. And so um, I'm actually kind of really interested in his work generally. Uh, but one of the things I read about um, Trick or Treat is the tone of it feels very 80s. And, and someone described it somewhere. I don't remember where I read this, um, that it's like the Goonies if all the kids die, right? <laughs> and I feel like um, uh, I think that's more of Salva's taste right there. Um, but yeah, that also describes accurately Trick or Treat, which I, I highly recommend that movie. It's really great. Um, and I hope nothing comes out about the director because I, I do have an affection for that movie as well. Um, but the, uh, but the idea then is carried forth immediately from the Taggart farm. Um, he, he enters this sort of, um, vengeance mode, right? He's listening to the scanner, trying to figure out where this thing went so he can go get it out of revenge. Right. Right. Um, the, the, the Ray Wise character, the Ray yeah. Wise character. Right. Um, um, in the meantime, what the creeper does is, find this school bus that's returning from some sort of state, I think basketball championship um, and um, full of mostly young men with a couple of cheerleaders there as well. Right. Um, and a psychic cheerleader. Yes. Yeah, so one of the cheerleaders is psychic. Right. And he I really believe- has an obsession with psychics. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a handy device to connect the material with the supernatural, right? Um, how else are they going to get any kind of information about this creeper without a, without a psychic girl, right? And so I think that that's, uh, that's, there's a practical reason for that. And I do believe I read this and I sort of remember this too. The actress, who plays the psychic was in an early episode of supernatural in a very kind of similar plot line, plot device actually. Really? Um, yeah, I read that somewhere and I, and I seem to remember that episode now that I think about it. I only watched the first two seasons of supernatural, but um, she, uh, her, her character, uh, it's interesting because she really sets the events for this one because she has a vision of Billy Taggart, the kid who has just been abducted. And then um, 
Justin Long's character from the first movie. Uh, so she's getting the premonitions before everyone uh, else, and she knows something's up. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she's there to, I mean, convey information to ramp up the fear and, and drive stakes up, right? Um, and yeah, and and like I said, I think this is a really well crafted movie overall. It does. It's not as it doesn't hold up to the original, but in its own way, it's doing something really interesting, particularly as an exploration of toxic masculinity, white toxic masculinity, I think you'd say. There's a, a character who is um, very racist, and there's a, um, a a kid who is being sort of bullied because of what they're assuming about his sexuality, and I wonder if that's um, Salva working out his own kind of tortured high school experience through that character's mm-hmm. um, presence in this movie. So I, there's something really interesting going on in this movie. But when you see it, I mean, it's literally children on a school bus, right? He disables the school bus and traps it on these lonesome Midwestern highways and um, immediately takes all of the adults out of the scene. Like the first three people are all the adults are gone and it's just the children left. Right. Um, well, you know, what's really creepy to me is uh, I think it's right after he takes out the bus. They just decide to start sunbathing on top of it. Like some of the boys, yeah. and he's just taking these long lingering shots yeah. Of their like stomach areas. I'm like, okay. And, okay. And again, by this time, people knew. I mean, the powder the powder protests are eight years in the past, right? People knew about this. How are the producers not stepping in and saying, We're okay working with you, but please not let's not do this <laughs> in the movie, right? Um well, it's, it's funny when I bring up that point about the sunbathing scene. Uh, people are like, well, what are you, homophobic? And I'm like, no, I, I don't care if directors do like these lingering shots of, you know, men. I mean, it's not my thing, but I mean, these are supposed to be young high school boys. Yeah, that, exactly. that's the pro- that's the real big problem there. This is not as bad as the opening of Clown House, but it is in the context of what we know about Victor Salva. Again, it is it becomes very disturbing, right? And this isn't like. Um, Joel Schumacher and the Lost Boys, right? Which is a ridiculously <laughs> gay movie, right? It's flamboyantly gay. That movie is is uh, which everything that uh, <laughs> Joel Schumacher has ever done is pretty flamboyantly gay. But. Yeah, and I love that. I love the Lost Boys. It's one of my favorite movies from the eighties, right? But I'm so Corey Haim's character would not have sexy Rob Lowe posters. <laughs> on his door um, unless it was uh, directed by Joel Schumacher. Right. And so um, that is, uh, but yeah. there's not that voyeuristic element in Schumacher's movies. It's not nearly as voyeuristic at least. I mean, that's what Schumacher's I'm saying. Yeah. dealt with some dark subject matter involving sex yeah. with movies like eight millimeter, but it's not, it, it just doesn't have the same vibe. Yeah. As, that's, as Victor Salva. It's, that, it's really creepy with Salva. And Ooh. that's, that's exactly what I'm saying, right? Even if the director is trying to sort of work those things out on film, um, it's done in a very lurid way in, in this movie. Um, and then later on, so when the creeper first makes himself, um, and again, for first time listeners, I work at uh, a Catholic college, Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And every once in a while, you hear the bells on the. <laughs> On the podcast, so uh, it's a little local flavor, though. But bear with me. Um, the um, uh, the moment when the creeper reveals himself to the, the students on the bus, it is. I and I read about this. I think uh, was this on. I watched this on. I rewatched this on Amazon, and I, I kind of looked at the trivia that they give you sometimes in the 
in the margins, whatever of the of the shows that they have on on Prime, um, there is a uh, there was a debate about whether that scene where he's sort of quote unquote flirting with the um, he's sort of winking at people uh, when he's picking out his victims, um, whether that was appropriate because it might have been too silly or whatever. And Salva made the distinct um, decision to leave that in the movie. And so um, that idea of like flirting with your victims is on display in the movie. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Salva has said his films are like macabre and sort of um, it's about how evil can end up winning winning over good. You know, it's it's uh, his films sort of have this bleak hopelessness. Um, but he also says that he likes having a campy element so that you don't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what he was going for with those scenes. But uh, all I remember, the scene that sticks out to me is he starts, I think there's a part where the creeper like is, is hanging off the bus and looking at the window and sort of licking the window. Yeah. And that was like, like the sexual overtones in this uh, or undertones. Uh, they're pretty in your face. Yeah. I mean, sex and death in horror are always sort of intertwined, right? I mean, that's, that's not a new thing. He didn't invent that, but, uh, but in the, again, in the context of his behavior uh, and once you ring that bell, it's hard to unring. And so the, this time on this viewing of Jeepers Creepers two, I couldn't help, but be a little bit appalled by just kind of the temerity of putting that on film. Um, because yeah, he is literally he winks at somebody, he smiles, he like these weird kind of pointy teeth, sexy smiles, and then there's this disgusting licking of the glass that is um um so over the top in the context of what we're talking about here. Um, anything else about that second movie that is uh, other than just sort of the the setting of it? A, he's invading a school bus of children um, and isolating them from their parents um, before basically sexually abusing and, and killing them um are there is there anything else there um i don't know i'd be interested if you could expand on the toxic masculinity thing i think i get so caught up in how creepy psychologically these films are that i didn't notice that yeah well one of the football or the i i thought it was a football team but apparently it's a basketball team uh one of the players was upset at um his um, the number of minutes he got to play in the game, right? And then there are a couple black uh, players on the team that he has like real issues with. Um, and so he um, uh, basically tells his girlfriend that maybe I'm the wrong color to get this kind of the, the attention I need. Right. And so um, he's clearly got this kind of racist like resentment. So uh, it's a sort of white um, toxic masculinity. I think that we're talking about. He's very much, um, I think the the girlfriend tells someone that when they when they win, he wants to be by himself. But when they lose, he she he can't keep she can't keep him off of her, right? And so there's a way in which he feels sort of like um, entitled to women's bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the there's a character who apparently writes for the school paper, um, who everyone his name is Izzy, and so the joke around school is Izzy or isn't he? Uh, and so there's this kind of assumption that he is gay, right? And so there's uh, someone's bullying him because of that, and, and so you mm-hmm. do get this um, really kind of like kind of insightful exploration of the way small town masculinity works itself out in the arena of sports. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite smart and, and, and I think well done and, and, um, and meaningful. Um, 
again, if it had been handled by a different filmmaker, I would feel better about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you make of the, uh, the Ray Wise character? Because like I said, he's really, he really is actually really great in this, but also, uh, it's interesting because I think it's the only movie in the franchise where really the adult is like the take charge character that sort of stops it all. I mean, I, I remember uh, the part that stands out to me was the um, the climax where he's using the harpoon against the creeper and he he goes like wild, you know, like just bashing in the creature, um, the creeper. And uh, that always stuck out to me. What, what do you think about the whole um, I, I read farmer s- subplot? Well, I read somewhere that he was kind of based uh, conceptually on Captain Ahab, which, you know, with the harpoon and all that, it sort of makes perfect sense and apparently there was a line from moby dick that he was supposed to say but it didn't go over well in test screenings or something like that um and so i think that that's sort of the um uh uh whatever inspiration and it's interesting to me going back to that eric roberts um monologue from uh nature of the beast he actually talks about a white whale as well and so you do get um even with the ray wise character you've got this um uh sense of like fighting against uh, a nature that you can't fight against, really. And even though he ostensibly wins, I mean, the creeper doesn't kill anybody else at the end of his harpooning and and stabbing. But it's only because the creeper ran out of time. It's the creeper's own kind of internal weakness that defeats itself. It isn't anything that Ray Wise did. He's sort of rather impotently i mean he does buy the kid the last kid enough time to survive for the last five minutes of the creeper's reign right um but uh, beyond that he really doesn't do anything to stop the creeper that nature wouldn't have done all by itself so it's him kind of fruitlessly (laughs) uh lashing out against uh against a nature that it can't control that he can't control so i think on some level you can read him as like uh, a false sense of security against a brutal nature that nobody can contain. And if we read the nature as as being um, Salva's own kind of sexual perversion, then I I don't know. I don't, that's a complicated way to read that. Maybe, maybe I'm overcomplicating his character. Um, I think Ray Weiss does a great job with what he's given there. No, I I could definitely see that reading. Um, because the the sort of nature of the beast comes out with Ray Wise's character at the end, you know, his his sort of rage uh, just goes full force at the end there. And also, it's funny. I didn't know about the Captain Ahab thing. I when I watched Jeepers Creepers two for the first time, I, I thought to myself, um, "Oh, Ray Wise is sort of like the Doctor Loomis character in this," <laughs> <laughs> you know. And Loomis is is a lot like Captain Ahab because uh, Doctor Loomis in the Halloween movies is sort of like the hunter hunting the hunter, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and and kind of like I mean he's going all out and giving himself up to it, but he's he's not really um, he's not able to actually do anything right. There is this sort of um, pointlessness to the. It's a very existentialist uh, sort of endeavor, right? Um, it's Sisyphus pushing pushing a rock up a hill. The ending of it too is a uh, really fascinating because it ends on you know an epilogue basically 23 years later you have these teenagers they go to the taggart's farm teenagers and, without shirts um, well yeah of yeah. course. <laughs> again yeah. yes and and you have this sideshow attraction the bat out of hell and you know they see ray wise's uh character he's just sitting there with a the gun yeah he's like i'm ready for this yeah yeah but we know that i mean 
I, I don't have any sense that he's actually going to win that battle, right? Uh, I mean, I feel like that's going to be him going down with, <laughs> with the with the ship, right? Um, and apparently, I also I'm, I'm getting all of this from the Amazon trivia that comes along, uh, but that was supposed to the bus driver was supposed to be played by Meatloaf, um, and uh, it was supposed to be subtitled "Bad Out of Hell" was the uh, um, subtitle of the original mo- of the movie in its concept, at least, and that all wow. fell through. But um, Meatloaf has been in some uh, really wild yeah. uh, horror movies, uh, but he's in a Dario Argento uh, short film Is that right? called uh, "Yeah, I'm, I'm blanking." I think it was called "Pelts." <laughs> mm. Oh, but, um, I've yeah. heard of this. Yeah, I've not seen it, but okay. But yeah, yeah. So Meatloaf has some experience with that. Um, yeah, I, I really love that ending though, because he, as he's sitting with, there with the harpoon, the teenagers say to him, uh, "Are you waiting for something?" And he, he just looks at the creeper and he says, "About three more days, give or take a two, <laughs> give or take one or two. Yeah. So yeah, it's sort of like yeah, he's just going to sit there and wait for it to happen. Um, but there's still that sense of helplessness with it that's like kind of upsetting. Like you know, like. Like he's an old man now. What what the hell is he going to do to the creature? When like what what chance does he stand? Like you know that sense that you, this there that the cre the creeper is really just this. It's an embodiment of evil, and no one knows how to really stop it. And I think the implication that Salvas had with all three films is that you know th- this is just the unstoppable force of nature that exists uh, within our world, and you can't get rid of it. It's in everyone. Yeah, um, and I mean the fact that if Wise's character is supposed to represent kind of traditional patriarchal control over society and with whatever traditional values, however you want to uh, define that. I mean, he's this sort of rugged farmer type, right? Um, he is like utterly impotent against this, um, this uncontrollable nature, which gets away from the cops at the end of the first one and is about to reemerge um, uh, in, in, we don't have any sense that he can possibly withstand this. Right. So Mm -hmm. it is almost as if Salva is trying to say, and he does write this as well. This isn't just his direction. He's also the writer of these three movies. Um, There's uh, we do get the sense that Salva is trying to kind of thumb his own kind of um, beastly nature in the face of people that as if to say, I got away with it. Mm -hmm. Or, or just that, the institutions will not save you like the police traditional masculinity these things won't save you um from that beastly nature which i think he believes is something that can't be controlled yeah yeah well and that's um i guess a good transition into the third movie which is a very strange movie like it's clearly the worst of all three of them just in terms of the quality of the film right um, I think it's the most interesting. But therefore, I was about to say that too, but it's also the most interesting. Um, first of all, let's talk about the timeline of it. Um, what do you make of that? Like that decision? So th- it takes place not in sequence. It is sequence. a prequel to Jeepers Creepers 2. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it takes place at the between Jeepers Creepers 1 and 2, right? And what a strange decision to make. And I have no... I have no explanation for, for that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I don't understand it myself. I'm my uh, how do I put it? My suspicion is that from what I have always heard, um, Salva wanted to do a movie 
with uh, Trisha, who, you know, the girl from the first film, and Ray Wise, where they both fight the Creeper. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard rumors of that. Um, and I'm just assuming he just did not have the money to put that together. Mm. Um, so maybe this was his way of doing a third film that sets up for a fourth film where there's that climatic showdown um, 23 years later. Um, I think that's another reason they probably did it the way they did. Because the whole 23 years mythos, um, you know, how how much can you do with that, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, without setting it into a future that we don't know what it's going to look. Yeah, it it doesn't really. um, It makes it hard to set up sequels. And so um, nonetheless, that's what we have uh, to work with with this movie. Um, And it but once again, by setting it that way, narratively, you lose the opportunity for the creature to come to any justice because we already know at the end of the second movie is the end of his 23 year cycle. Um, and he just sort of goes back in dormant. Right. And so at the end of this movie, we already know that five minutes later, he's going to slaughter those kids on the bus. Right. And so there's no way to actually come to a resolution in this movie where the creature is actually brought to justice. Right. I do want to talk about the ending, but I want to hold that off for a minute. Um, are there, what is, before, aside from the ending of the movie, what is kind of disturbing about it in, in the light of um, Salva's actions? Um, a lot of what I find disturbing about it comes at the end. But um, the scene that st- stuck out to me is, and I think there's a few scenes where they do this, is there's this hand that belongs to the creature, mm-hmm. uh, the creeper. Um, and it's like a severed hand, right? So... Whenever a character in this movie touches it, and I think the first one to touch it is um, Meg Foster. Um, she's a really great actress. I, I was actually – that's the only reason I watched uh, the movie was Meg Foster being in it because she's incredible in everything from like They Live to, uh, you know, B-movie crap like Shrunken Heads. Uh, yeah. But, I wonder if um, she's the reason I'm associating him with a lesser John Carpenter because of They Live. I, that's actually – I hadn't – yeah, that's a really good point, yeah. Well, she has she she and herself just looks so. I don't want to say creepy, but she has these like piercing blue eyes, yeah. And her presence really like it adds another layer uh, to it. Um, She's like both but, beautiful and unnerving as a young woman, and now as an mm-hmm. old woman, it's um, uh, it's 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 powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I think she's the first one to touch the hand, and then I think the detective later on in the movie touches the severed hand and they their eyes roll back into their head and all these wild supernatural things happen and then after they've touched it you know their faces look really drained they have like black marks under their eyes and uh, meg foster says to the detective um right before he touches the hand don't worry you'll come back i know you will or something along those lines um and i think the implication is that you're seeing the origin of the creeper right yeah um and it's just like that really like uh, it really hits you because it, it's like um, that's what I mean when I say like I don't think the creeper is just a monster. It's it's the embodiment of evil that Salva sees in the natural world. There's almost like a weird like social Darwinism to it. Like yeah. I almost feel like the creeper is like an embodiment of like a social Darwinist sort of worldview like this might makes right. Uh, sort of monster that will just do as it pleases and nothing can stop it because it's 
unrestrained by the rules of civilization. Yeah. Which makes the Moby Dick uh, comparison like sort of apt, right? I mean, he's, if he's drawing on that, I mean, he knows what he's doing, I guess, again. Um, but it's also the way in which they, they don't just like touch the, fing- the touch the finger of the hand, right? The guy actually grasps it and the hand, gra- they're holding hands, essentially. It's mm-hmm. like two people like coming into some sort of communion, right? Uh, and, and the one, and the insight you get is the sort of, the nature of the beast, if you will, right? You get, you get some insight into where it came from and to all of its uh, sort of history. Right. Um, and presumably if there's going to be a fourth one, which I honestly can't believe they're going to do a fourth one. Um, if I, I don't see it any, in any kind of stage of production on IMDB, at least um, presumably when did the first movie come out 2001. So what that means maybe 2024. Oh, you want to oh, years. Uh, that would be an interesting, yeah. Yeah. Maybe me too is wound down enough that maybe someone else could take it over and I would feel better about it. I don't know. But, um, I, I could see him doing a, a fourth one, even though I really wouldn't want him to do another movie. Yeah. Yeah. That would be difficult to, to stomach. But, um, but yeah. But the idea then is that by kind of entering into this very intimate communion with the hand of this beast, right? You sort of, get to know it. Right. And, and that is kind of, if you're looking at the monster as some sort of metaphor for the monster within, um, Victor Salva, then it, that scene has a very distinct meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think too, um, the way I looked at it was, um, like I said, I've, I've been in a close personal relationship with someone who went through uh, child sexual abuse. And to me, like I found the, that communion scene very like offensive Mm -hmm. just because um, I think when you know people that have been abused and that have been, you know, just systemically abused um, by an abuser, I I think it changes you because it it just, it burrows into your mind and you feel really helpless um, to help a person that's been through that. Um, And you can't, change what has happened in the past for them um you you're really powerless to do much i mean you can provide support but there isn't like some quick fix there isn't some perfect fix for anything and i thought about that while watching the movie i was like pretty disturbed by it because i i sort of related to how the meg foster character and the detective reacted um because you really feel powerless in the face of you know, the just the overall problem of abuse and what happens to survivors of abuse and how, you know, you just can't, what can you really do? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, to me, that's what they're seeing that, that powerlessness that they have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, the um, other thing that's kind of famously controversial, uh, we already talked about the, the casting um, for this movie, right? The, the kind of main character is a girl named Addie, who um, I don't know the actress at all, but um, she uh, is captured by the by the creep by the creeper, but doesn't die, um, and so she actually survives the trip in his like kill wagon. He's got this kind of amazing uh, uh, truck that he drives around and, and uses to torture and kill people, um, and so she somehow escapes from him by the end of the movie. But um, we find out early on that. She is living with her grandmother, Meg Foster, uh, who 
is uh, sort of taking care of her, but not really. But she comes from an abusive, uh, abused background, right? And so um, there's a little hint in it that in the, in the movie as it exists, that uh, she had trouble with her stepfather, basically, is about as deep as the movie goes. How it was written originally was that uh, someone says something about the stepfather um, kind of abusing her and someone making a joke about it saying, well, would have you seen her? Um, the heart wants what it wants or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was ultimately excised from the final cut of the movie. Mm-hmm. But again, the temerity of the man, Victor Salva, writing that into this movie um, is it's it's flaunting right his own sort of past in a really kind of astonishing way for me uh and that that's one thing that people have really complained about about this movie um what are your thoughts on that yeah it's it's something that i had forgotten about before you brought it up to me but it was um i remember that being a controversy and it's just uh he's really like brazen i think the the producer of the movie said that, you know, Salva can't help but get away from exploring the territory he wants to explore, more or less. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very, very true. Um, you know, I, I like in a lot of ways, I think these films are almost like they're either therapy for him or they're thumbing the nose at authority and victims or they're maybe a little bit of both. Um but yeah, that line is is pretty uh, disturbing. I think Gabriel Ha, who uh, played Addie, I think she was she had just turned like eighteen. Mm. Um, she's pretty well known um, to a lot of uh, you know middle aged uh, housewives because she's she's in um, days of she she's in Days of Our Lives. I think she just departed from Days of Our Lives recently. Oh, but, uh, is that right? Okay. Um. Yeah, she's 23 now. I don't know when did Jeepers Creepers come out. The last one Three. was 2017. So she would have been. Yeah, she would have been just round 18 then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty and actually as as we're talking here, have you ever seen this was again back in the 90s. Uh, a Roman Polanski movie called Death and the Maiden um, with uh, Sigourney Weaver and Ben Kingsley in it. Have you ever seen this movie? I, I have not seen much Roman Polanski, but what I have seen, stuff like The Tenant, um, Polanski seems to deal with a lot of similar territory in a very different way. Although Polanski, I think, um, he gets way too much of a pass. Yeah, me too. And I, that's one another movie that I feel guilty about loving is The Ninth Gate. It's uh, not only a Polanski directed, but it's just starring Johnny Depp, right? Um, it's probably the most <laughs> problematic movie, uh, the pro- V problematic movie that you can watch at this point in history, right? But um, I do like weirdly enjoy that movie for reasons I don't quite grasp. But um, but Depp- Polanski's films are interesting, um, by the way. I didn't mean to interrupt. I'm no, sorry. It's okay. They're interesting because his films, um, a lot of them depict evil as being very seductive and also this idea of evil winning out. Yeah. Um, Rosemary's Baby is probably the most um, notable of that. Yeah. But, you know, I guess the difference is I, I'm not sure. I don't think Salva portrays evil as seductive, but like Polanski, he, al- he also has this portrayal of evil as, you know, being stronger than the good. And and that's what I was thinking about with um, Death and the Maiden. I don't remember all that much about the movie. I remember it takes place 
in like South America, like Argentina or someplace like that. And Sigourney Weaver's character was abused um, by Ben Kingsley's character back in some fascist dictatorship day, right? Um, and the movie just sort of ends with them watching in the same theater, watching a performance of Death and the Maiden. Um, and, uh, and they kind of look at each other, um, with this kind of uncomfortable detente. Like he has gotten away with it. He's never going to be brought to justice. He feels guilty about what he did to her. She feels anger for what, you know, like an impotent kind of anger for what he did to her. Um, but there's nothing, there's no ever, there's never going to be a resolution you get, right? Um, the sense they just sort of look at each other. And I think her current husband is also part of this, um, this, this gaze. Um, and so the movie just sort of ends on this, this note of having to live with an evil from the past um, with the perpetrator who did it. Right. Uh, and I wonder if somehow um, Salva's doing a similar kind of thing uh, with uh, what he's saying about his own kind of crimes in, uh, in his movies there. Yeah. The thing that really stuck out to me um, in terms of this film was the dialogue. Um, I think, again, spoiler alert, uh, Trisha actually returns at the end of the movie for like, you know, an extremely brief cameo and a voiceover. Yeah. And um, after everything is all said and done, you start to hear the voiceover and she says, uh, I, I have the lines pulled up here. So she says, every 23rd spring for 23 days, it gets to eat. That's what we know. And the terrible things it leaves in its wake Missing fathers and mothers, brothers, sisters, daughters and sons. We know that too. And then this is the line that just really gets to me. The creature reshapes our minds and changes the course of our lives. Mm. And to me, that line was like, you know, I think that gets at the heart of the whole franchise and the heart of Victor Salva itself. Um, and, and the mark he has left on you know, people like Nathan Forrest uh, Winters. And, I, you know, I often wonder if there's more victims that just haven't come forward. But I, you know, we can't say anything definitively. Yeah. But um, the fact that he worked at daycare centers has always rubbed me the wrong way. That that whole the creature reshapes our minds and changes the course of our lives. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're a victim. It doesn't matter if you're someone trying to help the victim. Um, you will be uh, uh reshaped by contact with abuse yeah and that to me is what jeepers creepers 3 is really about um and it's really what makes it an interesting movie to me and very frightening yeah yeah um is is sort of poorly made as it is it the budget is not there the act the, it doesn't have the kind of quality acting or or anything else but um um but it is probably in its problematicness, I guess, um, in its problematic nature, I guess it, it is the most interesting. I want to kind of, and the end of the movie for the creature, I think you're right. Trish is the last scene in the movie, you know, saying that she's going out for revenge, basically. Um, but the well, end she of the- has that voiceover, but then the voiceover stops and you get an explanation as to how this ties into the second movie. We can get into that if you want. Oh, that's right. Yeah, the movie sort of, I guess, actually ends with an image of the school bus that we know is about to be dismantled in the, in the, in the second movie. Right. And so we already sort of know where this is going. Um, and so that, that is a, uh, 
I don't. Do you have anything to make about that? Uh, I, I, one of the the male heroes of the movie gets on the school bus, and apparently there's a line you caught this and I didn't that kind of explains why he wasn't in the movie. We we already know it just happened, right? Um, in part two, but um, the thing that's really kind of fascinating to me is when the creature does kind of come back to Meg um, Foster's farm for his hand, right, to keep his secret safe. Um, they have left it above the ground tacked to a note that says, we know what you are, right? And the the last thing we see of the creature is him just raging at the elements at being known, right? And, and to me, that is the most kind of galling scene that um, of, of the trilogy for me, knowing what we know about Victor Salva. Uh, it's, it's him throwing a tantrum about everybody know, knowing what a monster he is, right? And so he's trying, I don't know what he's trying to say with that, but what comes across is a very sort of self-obsessed um, uh, statement of why are you bothering me, kind of. And, and, and I just found it to be kind of galling. Well, that's what Salva has always done, though. I mean, it, it's notable that Salva has never apologized to Nathan Forrest Winters. Right. I mean, it's always been about him. It's always been about, I got hurt in prison. He'll say, I feel very bad about what I what I did, but I'm rehabilitated. That's as far as he'll go. He's never actually apologized to Nathan. Um, he's never answered Nathan's letters. Um, and, you know, the whole <sighs> we know what you are thing, I, I think that's exactly what it, what it is. When I first watched it, I was, I was sort of gobstopped by that. I was like, what? Yeah. Like, is he – is – like between that and the stuff with the severed hand, I was just like, he's really being blatant this time. Yeah. And I, I think that's partially because, you know, he knows that there's a controversy around him. And I think leaning into that, you know, probably gave more attention to the film. I think some of that was deliberate. And I think it was also he just he decided to go all out because why not? I mean, he 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 keeps making films regardless of what he's done. You know, he's allowed to keep making these films. And, uh, yeah, I think him flipping out, we know who, what you are. Um, I think that does relate to that knowing of, you know, that, that him being called out essentially for the monster that he is. And it's hard for me to not see the, the, the creeper of this movie as a, a pure metaphor for this, the nature of Salva's beast, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't, um, I, I can't, uns- I can't unring that bell as I said before. So I don't even know what we can take away from all this. Frankly, once I found out about Salva, these movies all took on a whole new meaning, and I honestly have no idea where to go. I, I don't know that I can tell people to watch these movies. I don't know that I want to tell people to not watch these movies. I really don't know what to do. What are your final thoughts? I think we should um, talk a little bit about Winters. I wanted to say real quick, I, I wanted to bring this up. Um, people get confused by that third film because of the ending with the bus, right? Yeah. And they wonder why um, – what is the character's name? Um, let me see real quick here. I'm, I'm blanking out on the, the boy, the, the love interest. I think his name's Kirk. Um, he's in love with the Addy character. Uh, but he said he's about to go on the bus – and he says, uh, yeah, I've got family down in Boulder. Um, I'll probably stay with them. So what happened was he got on the bus. They had the basketball game. 
And then he went to his family's house and stayed with them. Okay. So that's why he's not in the second one. Um, that's not really an important point, but <laughs> uh, no, no, but yeah, it is a way to explain a, a seemingly strange uh, gap there, right? For sure. Um, yeah, and so let me see who was this guy's name. Yeah, I can't remember his name either. There's so many kind of anonymous characters in that movie. Um, but so, like, where do we go from this, though? Like, I mean, what do you want to make of uh, of like, what are your final thoughts? Um. I think for me, the Jeepers Creepers films, like I said, there, there's this weird, and maybe this is because I'm reading into it too much. There's this weird, like, outlook that I think you can see in, in Victor Salva's work where he sort of has this, like, social Darwinian, you know, might makes right outlook. And that's why the evil always ends up winning in his films. Um, and I think that that's almost like, that can almost be read as, like, um, him justifying it. Mm. Um. But that's only one reading. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to look into it. I think there is something going on, though, involving Salva himself and the crimes he committed. Um, as to Nathan Forrest Winters, um, I think people really need to look into his um, his advocacy. Um, like I said, he does not put himself out there in the media spotlight. He doesn't. He's not attacking the fans of these Jeepers Creepers movies. You know, like I said, he talked to Connor Frazier, who's a fan of those movies, and Connor ended up making a movie with Nathan. You know, um, uh, he's very understanding of people, the the fans of that franchise who are really frustrated after they find out um, about Salva's history. Um, So I think people should look into Nathan Forrest Winters. Um, He has a band. I believe it's called The Seventh Stone. It's yeah. uh, an acoustic band, and the T is is the number seven, and so it's it's a it's an interesting uh, like look that they have. But yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's it's an interesting little acoustic band. Um, he does that, and then I think he has an advocacy group. I don't know if it's still ongoing. Called uh, We Are Just the Letter R, Their Voice. Um, so he does a lot of ad- advocacy, and um, I like his sort of take on Me Too. And uh, abuse survivors in general, he's like, we all have to sort of stand together. Um, we have to be proud. We can't, you know, just back down um, because of, of feelings of shame. And I, I think, you know, Nathan has probably had, I don't want to speak for him, but I think when you have a mill survivor of this kind of abuse, it's very, very hard to come out there and put yourself out there uh, when journalists and others come come to you asking questions. Um but, you know, he's very proud of who he is. He's a survivor and he's willing to talk to people. He's very open in my experience. Um, it, he doesn't let this destroy his life. Mm. I mean, he has the scars, uh, you know, and those scars are a lot worse, I think, than the 15 to 18 months that Victor Salva served in prison. Right. Um Nathan is a really good person, though. I think people should support his work. I know he's trying to get together a speaking tour. Like I said, he has a documentary with Connor Frazier coming out called The Babysitter. Uh, you can find him on Twitter and Facebook. He's very um, he's very open to just talking to regular, everyday people, journalists. Um, so if anyone's interested, he's open to talking with people, especially if you're looking for help um, with regards to finding networks for helping abuse victims and he's very big on healing you know we should 
you, you have to take the time to heal and to support each other. And like I said, it doesn't matter if you're a male victim, a female victim, um, young, old, uh, adult, child. If you're a victim, you have to stand up. Uh, we have to support each other is what he always says. And I completely agree with that. Uh, people from all walks deal with these kind of things. And it's a very systemic problem that has hit a lot of different people from a lot of different walks of life. Yeah. When you think about the the power that a place like Hollywood wields, I mean, it's, it's very brave of him to stand up against that and, um, and advocate for himself and others. And so, um, yeah, well, like I, I said, I, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, sued his family. Um, I know Nathan is not a big fan of Rose McGowan. He's not a big fan of Disney. Um, I think a lot of people have tried to shut Nathan down from what he has said. Um, you know, a lot of people find him to be a thorn in their side, but uh, people like him are really necessary in this world. And I think Nathan is proof that if Victor Salva's worldview is this one where evil wins and, you know, the might makes right survival of the fittest taken to this wild extreme where, you know, the monster uh, within us, the nature of the beast, always will prevail over our better angels. Uh, I think he's living proof that Victor Salva's worldview, if that is indeed Victor Salva's worldview, that worldview is wrong. Um, right on there, man. I can't uh, disagree with any of that. Um, JG, Michael, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Um, it was a weird one. I, Like I said, I don't know what to make of this. I just saw this and I felt like something needed to be said about this issue right now. Um, everyone's fixated as, you know, understandably so on the Epstein um, situation. And I, I just think that it's important that we realize how kind of pervasive abuse is in our, on our society. Epstein, uh, Nexium is also a really big one that I don't think people should forget about anytime soon. Yeah. Um, there's so many cases of, in Britain, there's Jimmy Seville, yeah. uh, you know, these, it's coming to a head now, I hope, um, because I, I think we've overlooked all of this far too long. And I'm, I'm sorry for ranting, and I'm also sorry if um, I'm a little disjointed. It's it's difficult talking about this stuff sometimes I, because it's so dark. It is. And, and like I said, I don't even know what to make of it. I have no sort of takeaway from this other than just to sort of um, look at it and, and be angry. And, and so um, I am very angry about the situation. And uh, once I found out about it, um, it, it makes me kind of reevaluate things that I had previously kind of taken um, as positives. Right. And, and now, now I don't know what to do with any of that. And so um, I, uh, I'm very much thankful for you and I, I'm thankful for what um, Nathan Forrest winners is doing um, to sort of help other people out of the situation. Um, anybody uh, that has any questions, please, let me know. Um, make sure that you're listening to Parallax Views with uh, JG Michael. Uh, you'll get a lot of um, uh, great insight about the world in uh, about corners of the world you probably don't don't know about yet. And so, um, I really do appreciate you, man. Thanks a lot. Can I make a recommendation real quick? Yeah. Um, one of my friends, uh, a private investigator by the name of Ed Opperman, he has a really great show called The Opperman Report. And if you type in Nathan Forrest Winters and Opperman Report, that's O-P-P-E-R-M-A-N Report, uh, you can find two interviews with Nathan done by Ed Opperman. Okay. Um, so I would really recommend listening to those. And uh, I also want to add, like I said, Nathan has never made this uh, 
about himself. It's really about advocacy for the victims. And that's what we really need to think about when we think not only about Salva, but uh, Epstein, Nexium, and uh, all of these other cases as well. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. No, no, no. And as always, I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the show notes. Um, if anybody wants to uh, uh, click on some links and learn more about this, I'll, I'll post some articles that I did some research about. And uh, and I'll try and find those episodes, too, and put them on the show notes uh, over at sectarianreviewpodcast.com. So, uh, J.G. Michael, thanks a lot, man. You were spectacular to talk to. You. Very kind of you to take the time. And uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, if your folks can do it, uh, check out Parallax Views. I highly recommend it. Thanks, everybody.